Welcome to the Accelerate America podcast, brought to you by Emerson. My name is Michael Gary. I'm the editor of Accelerate America. In this month's Accelerate America podcast, my colleagues Derek Hamilton, Checo America's Vice President of Business Development, and Elise Heron, Junior Reporter, and I will be discussing the amazing new policy developments impacting natural refrigerants, as well as our cover story on 30 leading end users of natural refrigerants. And finally, we'll talk about the safety of ammonia in ice rinks in the wake of the uh, unfortunate accident, fatal accident that took place in Canada recently. Hello, Derek and Elise. Hi, Michael. Hi, Michael. Hi, guys. Okay, well, there's been a lot going on in the last month on the policy side, as I talk about in my editor's note. Um, it's interesting because for most of the year, the prospects for environmental progress in the U.S. have been overshadowed by the decidedly anti-environment posture of the Trump administration, highlighted by its rejection of the Paris Accord, and and also uh, by the radically anti-regulatory EPA. However, um, that's changed in November because there were a number of positive developments to kind of counterbalance what we saw earlier. So let's start with the EPA's proposal to increase the charge limit for propane as well as isobutane to 150 grams from 57 grams in new household refrigerators and freezers under the SNAP program. Now, this is very significant because it would open the U.S. domestic market, the household market, to finally hydrocarbon-based refrigeration appliances, uh, which we see quite prevalently uh, in Europe and other places, um, but not so in the U.S. because of the low, it was originally 50, only uh, you only allowed 57 grams of hydrocarbons. Uh, I know you got, uh, Derek, you're from Europe and you probably are more familiar with these refrigerators that use hydrocarbons. Yeah, I, th I think we've, you know, the industry's known for, for some time, a number of decades really, that uh, hydrocarbons are really the, the, the most efficient refrigerant for uh, domestic refrigerators and, and small small freezers, small any small plug-in appliances. Um, so really, this is great news um, that we will be seeing a, an increase in the charge limit. Um, and I think really it's it's long overdue. Um, and really, what we're seeing here is is America catching up on on the rest of the world. And uh, I think it will be great to see uh, hydrocarbons become the the, really the only refrigerant that, that, that should be used for, for domestic refrigerators. Um, having just bought a, a new refrigerator myself, um, the, 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 the rule change comes a little bit too late uh, for me, but um, it, it's really good news um, for not only for the environment, but I think for uh, homeowners as well, because they, they're, they're going to get a more efficient uh, domestic appliance because of this rule. Absolutely more efficient and more environmentally friendly. So it's a really uh, positive development there. Another positive development took place on Thanksgiving Day when uh, an official from the U.S. State Department, Judith Garber, 
announced at the uh, Montreal Protocol meeting that the U.S. has finally initiated a process to consider ratification of the Kigali Amendment, which, of course, is part of the Montreal Protocol now, and it calls for the phase-down of HFCs. And um, Garber said the U.S. supports the goals and approach of the amendment. So this is a far cry from their, the uh, you know Trump administration's stand on the Paris Agreement, which they basically have rejected. But in this case, they seem to be supporting the Kigali Amendment, which is another global treaty. Uh, of course, the U.S. Senate still has to ratify it. And um, the administration has to um, initiate the process, as they say. So, you know, we still have to see that actually take place. But it is encouraging, nonetheless, that they uh, made this statement on Thanksgiving Day. Yeah, there's a little bit of uncertainty, I guess, uh, associated with the timeline um, you know, they, they don't really have a timeline for, for how long this is going to take. But for me, the, the, the most positive thing is that um, we're hearing that there is support um, for a ratification, um, which, which really um, is very positive news, considering that there had been some fear that the, the ratification process might be might be delayed. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling very positive about that. And it obviously comes just after um, the, the news that 20 um, parties have ratified the, the amendment um, triggering the, the, the adoption date in 2019. So um, it's all happening really um, at once, which is really building some momentum for it. Right. I, and I think like this in combination with uh, the announcement that EPA, the EPA is considering the or proposing to increase the propane charge limit are two big boosts to the world of natural refrigerants, at least in the United States, in a time when really the environmental policy of, of the Trump administration seems very, you know, counter to anything that would address climate change at the moment. Yeah, they uh, they, they don't support actions to address climate change, but they are, <laughs> they realize that they're not making an exception in this case. Um, yeah, I, I think that... Um, you know, it's very significant uh, that the, that they made this statement about Kigali because, of course, you know, the uh, U.S. Uh, industry fully supports Kigali and has been urging a ratification by the Senate for some time. At the uh, another big climate meeting took place in November, namely the COP23 uh, UN meeting that took place in Bonn, Germany. And there, of course, the focus was on Paris, and the U.S. played a marginal role. Uh, however, uh, there was a representation uh, by certain elements of the United States, namely Governor Brown of California and former Mayor Bloomberg of New York City, who introduced the America's Pledge Initiative. Now, um, America's Pledge Initiative basically points out or has managed to get uh, quite, a, uh, quite a few states, cities, and businesses, actually 20 U.S. states, 110 cities, and over 1,400 bi businesses uh, have adopted greenhouse gas emission reduction targets. So this uh, shows that a very, very large 
part of the U.S. economy. Uh, and if you, if it were a separate country, it would be one of the biggest countries in the world. Is is in fact supporting the goals of the Paris Amendment, despite uh, the uh, policy of the federal government. So that's very encouraging. Yeah, I think that I think the numbers really um, speak volumes for for this, Michael. And as you as you stay in the article, um, taken together, these um, states. Uh, cities and businesses uh, taken together uh, the combined economy of that group um, would would make it the third largest economy in the world behind um, the US and China so I think what we're talking about it's not just a small group it's a really significant um, uh, group which can have a really large impact on on the industry so for for me I think it's uh, a, a very strong um, message and one that we should be should be very happy about. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 imp- importantly for the natural refrigerants industry, one of the uh, greenhouse gas targets mentioned by the America's Pledge uh, Initiative is HFC reduction. Uh, in particular, they refer to the Kigali Amendment again. So uh, you know, HFCs are part of this America's Pledge effort to address climate change. And the report that they submitted specifically mentions that natural refrigerants like CO2 and hydrocarbons represent alternatives to uh, HFCs. So, and of course, uh, a big part of Jerry Brown is governor of a state, California, that has, uh, you know, done quite a bit to address green, uh, HFC um, emissions. And, um, helping the cause of natural refrigerants. So anyway, th- these were all very uh, encouraging developments, I would say, um, just over the last month. And uh, it's a good way to <laughs> end the year on a, on, a pos- uh, on a positive note, if I may say. Yeah, I think what's uh, what's interesting for me is that you know when we're planning for the podcast, we we have a chat about the the top stories of the month, and really November has just been packed with great policy news from from the US. Um, the the hydrocarbon charge limit, the um, the the commencement of the process for Kigali, um, America's pledge, um, and and on top of that, there, there's all the California specific. SLCP discussion, and and finally the new announcement um, by Senator Lara um, in California that there's going to be the introduction of the California Cooling Act. So taken all together, it's been it's been a very big month. Yes, has been has has been indeed. Yeah, uh, the bill um, proposed by Senator Lara is uh, interesting because it talks specifically about incentives that would be made available for these. Um, uh, HFC reduction uh, technologies, low, low GWP technologies. So, and that, of course, would benefit the natural refrigerants um, right. industry. I mean, the, just the language, too, that Lara uses is, I mean, he's definitely not being shy about it. He calls HFCs like super pollutants. He likens them to silent assassins in our air conditioning system. So he's really making a point that, um, you know, HFC reduction is incredibly important, uh, which I think is you know, not language that people maybe are used to seeing in the conversation around HFCs. Yeah, I think at least that's a really important point. Um, I think what Senator Lara's recognising here is that HFCs um, have not really um, been given as much uh, airtime as some of the other 
uh, short-lived climate pollutants in, in the discussions in California. So by using the, these very strong uh, terms, um, he's he's really kind of bringing that debate to to the forefront and and making people take notice. So I think it's a it's a really uh, cl- clever move actually from Senator Lara. Yeah, silent assassins is that's a phrase I'm going to remember. <laughs> I'm going to use it myself at some point. <laughs> Sounds like a good metal band. It does. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's a possibility. Anyway, um, moving on to another in- really interesting article in this month's issue of Accelerate America uh, has to do with uh, ammonia and um, a fatal ammonia accident that uh, occurred at a Canadian ice rink in the town of Fernie, British Columbia. Uh, back in October, uh, this um, sparked a lot of safety concerns uh, in the area, and um, it's uh, very unfortunate. Three three men, Wayne Horncrist, Lloyd Smith, and Jason Podlosky, died in the uh, accident. And um, you know the newspapers, the headlines uh, range from quite alarm to somewhat more reassuring. And one of the um, politicians, Wayne Stetsky, uh, even took to calling for a phase-out of ammonia in ice rinks, uh, opting for CO2 instead, which, of course, CO2 is beginning to be used in ice rinks in Canada and the U.S. So, uh, Elise, you you talked to Art Sutherland, um, who's president of Accent Refrigeration Systems, uh, and he has a good perspective on this. What, What did you learn from him? Yeah, so there, you know, this is undoubtedly a really tragic event that happened. Um, so that's, there's no underplaying that. Uh, but when it comes to ammonia being used in ice rinks, there are some really important things to remember, which Art um, highlighted. And Art's been in the ice rink industry, he said, since like the mid 70s. And um, he says in his career and in his predecessor's lifetimes, there's never been a fatal accident as a result of ammonia. So it's something to remember is that this is a this is a very rare, very isolated event. Um, and he also he makes clear that ammonia is a really great refrigerant. It's really readily available. It's super energy efficient. It's self-alarming. You smell it. As soon as it starts leaking, um, you know it's in the room. It's environmentally friendly. Um, it's got a GWP and an ODP of zero. Um, so there are a lot of benefits to using ammonia as well. And increasingly, the uh, ice rink ammonia systems are moving towards low-charge systems. Um, Art said that one of the systems that they've been installing uses around a fifth of the ammonia charge as traditional systems. So the the momentum is really moving towards safer alternatives. Yeah, that's a key point because um, he was speculating. I mean, the information about the accident uh, has not really come out yet, but he's speculating that it might have been a very old system with a lot of charge, like around 800 pounds. And uh, the newer systems he pointed out, like some of the ones that, that he's actually been installing, have a lot, as you say, have a lot less ammonia, which poses a lot less risk. So um, one of the, yeah, one of the keys uh, of this low charge trend is that it uh, results in a, in a safer environment for, for uh, both employees and, and the public. Um, and um, yeah, I think, I think that we can look forward to um, seeing more of those kind of systems um, installed. 
would you say, Derek, that uh, low charge represents a a way of improving safety for ice rinks and other places? Yeah, I think without doubt the risk associated with any ammonia facility is proportional to the amount of ammonia that's present. Um, and, and then kind of layered onto that is, is where the ammonia um, is, is located and, and you know the, the type of system used, the, the type of control system and so on. But certainly the, the basic measure of the amount of ammonia that, that's used is, is a pretty good indicator of the, the relative risk. So going low charge certainly helps to, to, to reduce the relative risk. And it's, it's a trend that we've been seeing. Um, you know, in this particular case, um, you know, of course, that this was a, a tragic accident. And it's very sad to hear of any life being lost in an accident such as this. Um, and, and of course, I think we're right not to, to speculate too much on, on the cause of the accident. Um, there are experts who are investigating and will report on that in conjunction with the, the local authority. And that um, investigation is going on. When it comes to uh, the the more general um, question of whether ammonia is a suitable refrigerant for use in ice rinks, I think the fact that it already is used in the majority of ice rinks um, tells its own story. It, it is used because it's very uh, suited to the job. It's a very efficient refrigerant. And for all the reasons um, that you've stated earlier, uh, it's been used uh, very widely. I think the particular situation in Canada as you touched on before is that a lot of the facilities were installed 40, 50 or even 60 years ago and when you have older facilities like that um, really the, the, the people taking care of those have to be on top of the, the, the maintenance of those facilities um, and, and keeping them up to code uh, and it's it, it's possible that some of these older facilities do not have a lot of the control systems and, and safety systems that are, are used as standard on, on a uh, system that is designed and built today. So for me, um, it's not very useful overall to, to talk about um, any kind of ban on ammonia in um, refrigeration systems for ice rinks. But what we should be doing is is taking a closer look at the existing systems that are out there and making sure that they are being maintained properly and that they're 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 up to code. Um, going forward, when people are looking at installing new systems, um, CO two is definitely an option. Uh, CO two is a, a very efficient refrigerant, and we have heard of several installations where CO2 has been used successfully uh, in ice rinks as a direct refrigerant. So uh, I, I think really it will come down to uh, cost and, and the availability of the, the, the technology in question. But I, I do think that we'll see both low-charge ammonia and CO2 being used in, in, in ice rinks going forward. Yeah, one of our leading end users who we're going to talk about soon um is the uh, municipality of Anchorage, Alaska, which installed uh, a Hill Phoenix CO2 system in fora of their uh, of their ice rinks in the city of, of Anchorage. So that's uh, certainly a, an interesting um, trend that we're seeing uh, that's starting to happen with CO2. So, but in, in terms of ammonia, I would agree with everything you said. I think also 
should be pointed out these package systems can be installed outside the rink, and that uh, being exposed to the outside uh, might also help to uh, alleviate the risk of leaks. That's a really good point, Michael. Uh, what I didn't mention is that a lot of the package systems are installed outdoors, but in any case, um, ammonia is is restricted to a machinery room in, in these ice rinks, and uh, what what's circulated beneath the rink floor would be uh, either a brine or, or a glycol solution, so um, the refrigerant is, is not being um, circulated under the floor in the majority of cases, the exception being some of the more modern uh, CO2-based systems where there, there are uh, designs which circulate CO2 directly under the floor. But with ammonia, it would be in the machinery room or restricted to, to an outdoor package chiller. Right. And it's also worth noting that every refrigerant poses risks uh, because, um, uh, you know, even the, the old Freon refrigerants uh, and CO2 as well, I mean, if it, if it, uh, you know, it leaks in an enclo- in an enclosed space. It can displace the oxygen and uh, cause asphy- asphyxiation. So, really, uh, no matter what refrigerant you're using, um, you, you you know you need to uh, follow safety precautions. I think that's uh, no question about that. Okay, let's uh, finally move on to our cover story, which is very exciting. Um, talks about th- thirty different organizations in North America. Uh, that we're calling le- the leading end users of natural refrigerants, um, and uh, yeah, we have quite a, quite an interesting uh, group of companies um, that are on this list. Uh, we try to make sure that we that we uh, provide the latest updated information on their natural refrigerant uh, installations, um, and uh, of course, you know, we, we limited the list to thirty. There are many others that we could have. Included, but um, you know, didn't have didn't have room. But with these these thirty that we did list, uh, we consider to be quite quite important to uh, highlight and bring attention to for what they're doing because uh, we consider them leaders in this space. Um, most of the applications are for refrigeration, but some are for air conditioning and even heat pumps. Um, we we aren't rank, we don't rank the the companies. We think that they each uh, make make a significant contribution. So they're all considered equivalent, um, even though some have have you know more installations than others. Of course, uh, the most uh, companies are from the food retailing sector, um, and then we have a lot of companies both in industrial refrigeration and food service. But we also have uh, other sectors represented, um, such as, uh, we just talked about ice rinks, uh, also data centers, public buildings, and apartment complexes. So it's quite a quite an interesting list. I think our readers will really enjoy this this piece. Um, so I'll, I'll talk a, a little bit first about the food retail sector. Uh, we have on the list, of course, the, the leaders in North America start with Sobeys. In Canada, uh, which uh, has over a hundred uh, transcritical stores, uh, mostly in the in the Quebec province. All the uh, we reported in our cover story back in September. Um, at that time, they had about seventy stores with transcritical systems, with more on the way. So, I mean, the fact that we have both in Canada and the U.S. 
these two companies that have made a full-fledged commitment to CO2 as a refrigerant, as a natural refrigerant, that's that's pretty encouraging news right there, wouldn't you say, guys? Definitely. Yeah, I think uh, you know you're highlighting the, those those two on the food retail list, and I think rightly so uh, because they've got this commitment to use CO2 going forward, and I think that that's a really great move uh, from from both of them. Um, but you know, looking looking down the rest of the list, there there there's a lot going on there, and I think it's a it paints a very encouraging picture for for food retail in North America. Absolutely, I think um, more and more uh, food retail industry is waking up to the potential of natural refrigerants uh, as a, as a, as a future proof solution going forward, and uh, especially in these days with uh, attention to t- attention being paid. Um, on HFC reduction and um, I think the jury being out, still out on HFOs in many re- respects, I think these companies have absolutely seen the advantages of natural refrigerants. Whole Foods uh, is one of the most interesting companies on the list because they, they have experimented probably with a more diverse portfolio of systems than other companies. They they now have 24 systems using CO2 in some form, 14 that only use natural refrigerants, 12 transcritical systems, and um, and of their cascade systems, one of them uses ammonia on the high side, another uses propane on the high side, all natural refrigerants. So Whole Foods has really been experimenting uh, with all the different, and of course they also have propane, quite a few propane self-contained cases. They They've covered the gamut of possibilities, and I think they're really, uh, really done a great service to the industry in exploring all these different, all these different possibilities. Yeah, I agree, um, and I think related for, for me that the bigger question here is what these companies are doing is is very well known within the industry, but the next phase would be uh, publicizing that to the public. And I wonder how long it will take before people start making buying decisions based on the environmental impact of the of the store uh, as a whole as a whole, and uh, of course that largely is impacted by the refrigeration system. So what I would like to see is is some of these retailers being more vocal about what they're doing with their refrigeration systems and maybe promoting that to their customers as a way to show them that they are uh, that they are investing in more environmentally friendly technology what do you think Elise would, would that do you think that's something that we'll see happening soon I I hope so and I think not only from a consumer perspective I think consumers are becoming much more aware and sort of voting with their dollar so to speak I think um, we we've sort of seen that happen um, Customers want to invest money in in corporations that are sustainably minded, uh, and I also think from a from an economy perspective, the more that natural refrigerant uh, based technology is accepted, the cheaper and more available it becomes to anybody who wants to use it. So there are, you know, customers aren't the only people benefiting from switching to natural refrigerants. That's a good point. It's a good point. I, I'd like to just add that. Um it's really interesting uh, when you look at these these companies. Some of them are very very um, promotional about their environmental uh, initiatives, including natural refrigerants um, companies like Whole Foods, uh, for example, uh, take pride in in what they do on the uh, to help the environment. Other co- other companies um, 
have been very reticent about it, um, even even reticent about talking to the industry, never mind uh, the uh, p- general public. So in some cases, um, we we were uh, we did not get feedback, but uh, we made um, you know we reported on what we know. I mean, Trader Joe's uh, we we know um, has at least four transcritical stores in Southern California. Uh, Little uh, has recently entered the U.S. market from Germany, and um, they they're doing an enormous amount with propane self-contained um, cases in 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 Germany and in Europe. Uh, suggesting they may follow suit in the U.S. So in some cases, the companies are very, you know, uh, open about what they're doing um, to the industry, trying to get more end users, trying to get more retailers to jump on board, drive drive volumes up and prices and costs down, which is, helps everybody. Uh, others are keeping it very close to the vest. So it's a, it's a very uh, uh, divergent uh, kinds of philosophies we see uh, in the marketplace. But in any event... This list, um, you know, we try to capture uh, a wide array of companies that are doing both small, co- large companies like the, um, you know, Aldi's and the Whole Foods, but also kind of small operators like the Chico and Sons in um, the uh, New York City area um, in Westchester County. They they have uh, opened two st- new stores with Transcritical as well as uh, retrofitted a store, and they're and they're planning to retrofit another store and open yet another store. With transcritical, so, and and they're also uh, looking at propane as well. So, this is a very small operator that that's jumped on the uh, bandwagon, and uh, you know, it's it's really quite interesting. Uh, yeah, I think so. It's a pretty good overview o- overall of of where the market uh, seems to be moving, and uh, although there are many retailers uh, using natural refrigerants. There are also many that, that are not yet, so there is still a lot, a lot of room for improvement, and we hope to see these uh, numbers growing in, in the, the coming years. Right, because the total number of transcritical stores in, in North America is somewhere upwards of 400, and that's well below what's going on in Europe, so we have a long way to go. But step by step, we will get there. Yeah, so moving on to the industrial sector, I've been, uh, you know, this is a a really good list we've put together here of what we consider to be the the, the leading end users. And what what this means is that we really see these um, as as companies who are innovating with their application of natural refrigerants. And what what we see from the list here uh, in industrial is that the majority uh, are using ammonia and some have also been using CO2. Um, well, one of my favourites on this list um, has got to be the, the Henningsen Cold Storage Company who are based based here not far from, from Portland in Oregon. Uh, I've actually been out to, to meet with Pete Lepshat and, and some of his colleagues and, and uh, taken a look at some of their facilities down in Salem, uh, w- which you mention here. Um, and, and what they've done there is they've taken a a central ammonia plant design, but they've worked with um, the, their contractor, who, who in this case is Permacold uh, Engineering, also based in Portland, uh, and they've really optimised the, the the central plant design. They've they've used optimised evaporator designs and, and a low overfeed rate, um, and, and really thought about 
from the very beginning um, how they can optimise the design to minimise the charge. So it's a great example of how uh, the, the design can be optimised from the beginning um, and what what is, is largely a, a quite traditional design on paper um, actually is very innovative in a lot of the, the things they're doing. So I think Henningsen are, are, are doing a great job there. And, and the re- latest news is that they're, they're planning to install a transcritical CO2 system up in uh, Washington, a, a new build facility uh, that will be going in uh, throughout 2018. So again, another great example of, of what um, Pete and the engineering team at Henningsen are doing. So congratulations to them. And the the other one here on the list uh, that stands out to me is is the Campbell Soup Company. Um, they are well known for uh, their their environmental uh, policy within the company. And one of the particular facilities that that's mentioned here um, is, is what an installation at uh, their Napoleon plant in, in Ohio. Uh, what they did there was they installed a, a low-charge uh, ammonia chiller. It was one of the uh, Azane chiller packages, and uh, we reported on that extensively in uh, last month's um, Accelerate America. But what's interesting for me is is that particular location uh, that, that Campbell's plant had previously been awarded uh, uh, an award for its environmental uh, leadership. So it's it's just a, a good way to highlight that Campbell's are really doing a lot to uh, reduce their environmental impact. Absolutely. Campbell's is uh, actually one of the pioneers of low-charge uh, ammonia. Um, uh, Barb Zarnecki, the former refrigeration uh, chief there, um, helped to bring in um, one, of the, one of the first lo- low-charge ammonia skids uh, in a machine room that uses glycol as a secondary fluid. And that was even as far back as the late 80s and early 90s and it kind of paved the way uh, for what came after they also have some uh, bakeries, Pepperidge Farm bakeries, uh, which they're uh, they're converting from more twenty two to low charge ammonia. So they they've done quite a bit. It's a very impressive uh, story which we've written about. Yeah, and there's some other um, really interesting examples here uh, on the list. I would encourage listeners to go check out the magazine on AccelerateNA.com, where they can read the the rest of the list there. Um, I, I think. In the other sectors category, Michael, there were some really uh, interesting applications there, and one of them was uh, Sandin's uh, domestic hot water heat pump. Now, coincidentally, Elise and I uh, just attended a training session uh, hosted by Sandin uh, just north of Portland uh, yesterday, and for me it was really, really uh, interesting to learn a bit more about how those heat pumps are applied. Right, yeah, so... um... Sandin is a they're a company based out of Japan actually, but their uh, CO two based heat pumps for hot water have started to make their way to the American market, which is very exciting. Um, they they recently did a project um, with Mercy Housing, a Denver based um, affordable housing nonprofit. They installed the Sandin heat pump in six Northern California properties. Um, so. That shows CO two being used in some some residential applications, and uh, which is which is new. And uh, in fact, the EPA has approved CO two for heating water, but not for space heating. Um, and something that's really interesting about these systems also is that they're all 
factory sealed, the only points of um, that contractors really need to think about connecting are water lines and electricity lines. So it makes the the setup very streamlined and I think really enticing for yeah. End that's users. a great point, Elise. That this is something that um, sets the the Sandin water heating heat pump apart from other heat pumps in the market and that is that the CO2 system is completely contained within the outdoor unit and, and as Lise rightly says the only connections are the water lines so um, with a normal heat pump you need to run refrigerant lines between the um, the outdoor unit and the water tank where the there is a refrigerant uh, coil wrapped around the water tank but Sandin have come up with this system where the CO2 is all contained within the outdoor unit so that's something I, I learned yesterday actually and it's, uh, it's, a, it's a really neat design which uh, simplifies the, the installation for the, the contractors. Right and I think it goes to show one of just the innovative ways that natural refrigerants are being used outside of refrigeration and, and air conditioning alone. And I think, I hope we'll start to see more of these applications. And there are a few others on, on this list as well who are... Well, well we're, we're going to see at least one more, Michael, because I've been... Uh, I, I like the sand-in unit so much that I'm, I'm planning to get one installed at my house. So uh, we're, we're currently just uh, check, checking out the size of that, that hot water unit. Um, for me, actually, it's a bit of a no-brainer, and this is something that we'll, we'll, we'll report on uh, once I get the unit installed. But currently, my house uh, has a, a, an electric uh, water heating system, and uh, by switching to the, the sand and heat pump, I expect my hot water um, cost to reduce by something like 70%. So we're really going to, to, to be saving a lot. And uh, for me, it's uh, exciting not just to be here on the podcast uh, talking the talk, but uh, I'll also be actually installing this system at home. So mm-hmm. exciting times. Well, good for good for you, Derek. That's very exciting. I, I hope to be able to do something similar myself um, in my house. Um, but yeah, I mean, in Japan, the Sandin unit is quite popular. Uh, they sell quite a few units. Uh you know, and I, I hope that we see some pickup of this t- technology in the U.S. I, I, I mean, we've already talked about uh, you know hydrocarbon uh, refrigerators for for home use, and here we're talking about uh, heat pumps, uh, CO two heat pumps. So I think that you know it's it's going to be very exciting to watch as the U.S. catches up with other places when it comes to using these uh, environmentally friendly, climate friendly uh, systems, you know, refrigeration and, 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 and air conditioning and heat pump systems right, right in your home or in your, in your uh, apartment building. I think that's a very exciting development indeed. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things we know is that CO2 is very, very efficient at heating applications. So whether that's heating water or when it, when it eventually um, gets EPA approval, um, for for space heating as well, so CO two is very good at that. Where CO two has a bit of a challenge is that it's not very efficient uh, at air conditioning temperatures. So it it would be uh, less of an efficient refrigerant for domestic air conditioning, um, and that's where we we might see hydrocarbons uh, really making inroads, as we've seen in other parts of the world, such as India and Southeast Asia, where there are you know hundreds of thousands of hydrocarbon based domestic air conditioning systems out there. Right. China is also ramping up. Yeah. 
Okay, let's just uh, conclude our uh, discussion of the cover story with a look at the food sec- food service sector. Uh, we had an update on what Red Bull uh, is doing with its uh, echo coolers. They were, they told us that um, they now have installed close to a million of these uh, uh, hydrocarbon-based echo coolers globally, and it mounts to 80%, more than 80% of their fleet of cooling equipment. That is very impressive. Uh, and um, the uh, in the U.S., they told us they've employed almost 300 or 270,000, ISO, they use isobutane uh, in these uh, U.S. echo coolers. So really a, a great job by Red Bull in terms of uh, telling an environmentally friendly story. I, I think they're to be commended for that. And we also uh, report on what on some new numbers from Coca-Cola. Uh, according to their latest sustainability report, they added more than 623,000 HFC-free f- coolers fountains and vending machines last year, uh, ramping up their total number globally to two and a half million. So again, these, these, these giant, uh, brands are, um, really, uh, you know, walking the walk themselves when it comes to, uh, improving the environment through these technologies. And of course the, the news with Coke, what we learned last year was that while they had initially, uh, emphasize CO2 as a refrigerant, they've sort of switched gears following companies like Red Bull and others to using um, hydrocarbons such as uh, isobutane or propane. So that's uh, certainly an interesting development there. Yeah, and it's another example of where uh, I think there could be more done to promote to consumers that these companies are using environmentally friendly refrigerants. I think Red, Red Bull and Coca-Cola, the, the ones the ones you've mentioned, along with the others on the list, uh, PepsiCo uh, and and Nestle and even Starbucks and McDonald's. Um, you know they they've been doing a lot to to move to uh, non HFC uh, refrigeration systems, and and I think it's something that we we should be shouting about and telling the consumer. So that the consumer can make a more informed decision about where they're where they're getting their um, where, where they're purchasing their their drinks. I think some of these companies put uh, labels on the on the coolers to sort of tip people off, but probably should do more than that uh, to make people aware that uh, that this is happening. Yeah, and, and it links back um, yeah. to the you know the the strong words used by Senator Lara when he announced the California Cooling Act. It's it's the the silent assassins that are present in all of these systems. I I don't think people are aware when they're um when they're at the supermarket getting their groceries that um that there's such a potent greenhouse gas being used to to keep their cheese cold. That's right. I take it for granted. All right. Well, I think that we've got some great stories in this month's issue. I'm really excited about it. And um, I think that'll do it for this month's Accelerate America podcast. I want to thank my colleagues in Portland, Oregon, Derek and Elise. Thank you for listening. And we'll catch you next time on the Accelerate America podcast.